Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from flatlining.net. With me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, good afternoon. How are you? I am great, sir. I hope you are as well. I am doing pretty well. Uh, summer is in full swing in lots of different areas in the country. I know we're dealing with an air quality alert again today. Uh, it doesn't look quite as bad as it did in New York about a month ago, but uh, it's it's uh, something else when you see when it's a really hazy skyline. You can barely see the buildings when you're heading into the city. Yeah, you're not supposed to be able to see the air you're going to breathe. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's a that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about a couple different things today uh, going on in North Carolina. First, uh, we'll talk about the Medicaid expansion. And where we are with that, because there's some debates about the state budget. We'll talk about how many people are expected to be added to the uh, the Medicaid rolls. And we'll also talk about an interesting thing where Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina, uh, as well as Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Jersey, uh, are both restructuring in, in sort in kind of not not official not legally, but they they will be acting more like for profit insurance companies. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means for providers and patients uh, in those states. But first, I do want to plug last week's episode of Pulse Check on the candidates. This is our uh, ongoing series that we're doing on the candidates for the 2024 presidential election. And as I mentioned in the Friday Pulse Check last week, we kind of started with two interesting fringe people. We had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the Democratic side, and then you've got Perry Johnson. And unless you've lived in Michigan or Iowa, you probably have no idea who he is. Uh, we've broken down his Two Cents to Save America plan, and we tell you what it means for healthcare in Pulse Check on the Candidates. That's last week's episode. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to us today. Also want to plug real quick, Ron, your book, uh, Cleared, uh, Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy. You were just on uh, Dr. Frank Sweeney's podcast last week. Uh, tell me how that went. It went great. Um, you know, Frank does a great podcast. He's an anesthesiologist in California, and um, it's long. I mean, we, we were talking for about an hour and a half, but he mm -hmm. loves to get into to details, so I really enjoyed it. We've got that linked at flatlining.net if you're interested. Uh, you can find it there. And go ahead and subscribe to Frank Sweeney's podcast because it is, it is good stuff that he talks about over there. Uh, f also, real quick, before we jump into the North Carolina stuff, I've had a lot of questions from my clients, Ron. I'm sure you've had questions from yours. And that is, where are we with the No Surprises Act and these Texas Medical Association cases? Because I think we all thought June would be, end of June would be the right timeline. And here we are midway through July. So, so what can we expect at this point? What's the deal? Well, you know, there, there isn't much of an update because the judge hasn't issued his ruling yet. Um, one of the, I think, probably one of the nice parts about being a federal judge is you get to operate on whatever timeline you want. Um, you know, so we're still waiting. It could come out today. It could come out this week. We expect it any day. Um, and now, really, I think the people who watch this really closely uh, are sort of worried about, it's almost like when a jury is out for a long period of time, the defense worries and the and the prosecution also worries. What are they doing? Why didn't they make right. a quick decision? So, um, you know, this could be easily explained by he just took a week off around the 4th of July and a little bit behind, or maybe this is more of a complex decision for him than what we thought. So, right. um, now I will tell you that in the, in the area of, and it's somewhat related to NSA because the NSA allows this, is what made this possible. And I will first say, this is rumor, and I heard about this about an hour ago, um, but there is a rumor running around that United Healthcare has made a decision nationally to amend every single anesthesia contract they have with an anesthesia group 
and reduce the rates to 100% of Medicare. And many of their contracts allow them to do that. And the recourse for the people under contract, since that's a material change to the contract, is you can terminate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically what will happen is you get an amendment that doesn't require your signature. If you do nothing, suddenly you get paid 100% of Medicare instead of what's in the contract, or you can just terminate. And the rumor is that United is doing this because they want to prep the groundwork, if you will, for the fact that then there will be no median contracted rate in many of their markets, or the only median contracted rate that will be in the market will be 100% of Medicare. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and this is the kind of thing that would not have happened without NSA. So right. it'll be interesting to see how the ruling comes out and then what happens if this rumor is true and does TMA, for example, file a different lawsuit around this kind of behavior? Because it's clearly not in the spirit of what the law was meant to do, which was to right. incentivize more contracts, not less. Now, say we'll, we'll we'll take this as a um, as kind of a hypothetical working on this rumor, just and we'll move yeah. on here quickly. But say the rumor is true, but say that they have a significant number of physicians and practices go out and go non par and terminate their agreements. This, I guess, has really the potentiality to backfire on United Healthcare if they can now go to N- they can go through the NSA arbitration process and say, well, we want our previous contracted rate plus inflation from 2019. Um, it, it can. It also can overload the process. True. Um, which is already overloaded. Yep. And eventually, you know, that whole provision of previous contracted rate only goes back four years. And so this may be, again, where this is hypothetical because we don't know if the rumor's true. This may be one where they're trying to play the long game to say, you know what, in four years, we don't have to worry about it anymore because right. now there isn't a previous contracted rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a significant amount of money. So it just, like I said, if it's true, it's another example of how anytime government does something, no matter how well-meaning, you have to be careful about unintended consequences and mm-hmm. how it's going to be used. Yep. Well, we'll keep our ear to the ground on that. And if we hear anything on that front, we will let you know both here on the podcast and in our weekly newsletter. Let's talk about uh, North Carolina Run, uh, my home state, the place that you now call home, uh, Mm -hmm. because we have a couple of interesting stories and things happening there in the healthcare world. First is Medicaid expansion. And as we discussed before, North Carolina was one of the last states to finally uh, take some of that federal money to expand Medicaid. Um, and part of it, and you got the legislature, legislature, excuse me, to agree to it, as well as the uh, Democratic governor, Roy Cooper. Uh, but there's a content, it's somewhat contingent on the state budget. What was the yes. contingency for that? Well, it's, since it's part of the state budget, there's a little bit of state money that, that pays for Medicaid expansion. Most of it's federal. And there was some other monies that were involved in the quote-unquote deal to get everybody to agree to it. So that stuff can't happen until the state finalizes its budget. Okay. So it, it is waiting. It has to be also approved by the federal government, which won't be a problem. But they have to get a budget through and approved before they can start the Medicaid expansion. And we haven't approved a budget yet. Mm-hmm. And is there a timeline on that? You, you mentioned that you, you talked to some lobbyists earlier today. Do, do we know when we're going to see a new state budget? Well, um, we were doing really good. I mean, we were working at sort of a breakneck pace and everybody thought it was going to happen quickly. And it has now hit a deadlock um, to the point where 
Uh, I think the Senate ref- did not come back into session after the 4th of July and has sent a message to the House that they will not come back in session until there's some significant um, movement on the House side on a budget. And we thought originally that this was purely around some negotiation around tax cuts and some uh, economic development spending. But what we're now learning is that there are some other issues that seem to also be hanging up. One of them is medical marijuana, and the other one is a potential casino um, Mm. approval. So um, we don't have a budget. Partly what we think is because of some disagreement on tax cuts and spending and also because of gambling and marijuana. So, you know, hey, right. uh, the question is, when are we going to get a budget? Who knows now? Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it probably isn't likely to come real quickly, given the topics that are on the table. Well, and I know from my experience here in, in, in Michigan, when they passed the medical marijuana law, the goal was always to have it fully legalized. And when that finally mm-hmm. did get fully legalized, uh, it, you can tell who wrote the, uh, the the amendment that was on the ballot that the voters got to vote on. It was the medical marijuana people because they got to have the monopoly for three or four years before they all these other corporate marijuana chains came in, which is why now there's an explosion of, of billboards and advertising everywhere. Um, so if we're not sure when it can come down, how many patients is this um, – is it withholding their access to Medicaid from? How many people are we expecting to join the Medicaid rolls once the expansion passes? So the numbers are a little bit squishy and they change because right. obviously, you know, you could not qualify today and tomorrow if you lose your job, you could qualify. Right. You know, because it's based on, I think, 138% of the federal poverty level. So roughly speaking, um, the numbers are anywhere, I've heard anywhere from 400 to 600,000 people. Okay, Mm -hmm. so roughly, you know, there's about a million people covered by North Carolina Medicaid right now. We're going to pick up, let's let's peg it in the middle, about a half a million more that would qualify um, under this um, this new Medicaid um, standard, um, which is a pretty significant jump. I mean, half a million people who most of which probably either don't have insurance right now or have, you know, very um, bare bones insurance Mm -hmm. um, are waiting to get access to healthcare um, because the government can't decide on a budget. Now, and, and this number may be completely unknowable, but I'll ask anyway, but we know that a lot of people were kept on during the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a moratorium on removing people from Medicaid, even if they no longer qualified. Um, that moratorium has since passed since the public health emergency ended in May. And um, I, but there has been analysis that a number of people who were being kicked off the Medicaid rolls because that moratorium ended were then going to be picked up later on as Medicaid expanded. Do you know about how many people that might affect that who are now either without health insurance uh, because of the end of the moratorium who will be once we once we get in or is that number just not really knowable? Uh, you know, I've seen some analysis on that number, but most of what I've seen is making some pretty wild assumptions or assessments to where I don't, I don't sort of believe that there's credibility to those numbers. No, sure. it's not to, it's because it's a difficult thing to look at because you have all these different variables. You know, first of all, you know, we, we know roughly how many people are going to be removed from the rolls um, because of the end of the health crisis. What we don't know is how many of those people would have an option to, pick up health insurance through their employer. Mm-hmm. We don't know how many people of those would are going to buy through the exchanges who, who might get a 
you know, federal subsidy if, if that they could buy through the exchanges, um, or how many of them will just be without insurance. So it, it's pretty loose as far as number. Suffice it to say, it's a significant number of people that had Medicaid coverage that are probably going to be taken off the rolls now that are either going to be uncovered or undercovered until the new Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. It's not the Smith family. Right. You know, it, it's, it's at least tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. You mentioned uh, the amount of people that could be added to the Medicaid rolls just in general, not taking into account any of the COVID right. stuff, was about 500,000. Just mm-hmm. if we do a straight down the middle, um, you know, assumption there. A, a legitimate question I've heard from a few of my clients is, can the state handle that? And are they going to see an influx of patients into their office? So uh, the state can handle it. Um, will there be some hiccups in some of the, you know, the... Uh, eligibility stuff, sure there will. I mean, Medicaid's not a super efficient um, process, mm-hmm. um, but the state can't handle it. Now, the bigger question is, because again, most of these people will go into one of, the, one of the managed Medicaid programs, is can they handle it? Can they handle it from a claims processing? Because, you know, they're the ones who are actually, these managed Medicaid plans, insurance plans, are actually paying the claims and doing the authorizations, et cetera. Um, and, and they've got their own challenges as far as staffing. So that's a bigger question is, can they handle it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, will these physician groups see a, a large influx of patients into their office? Potentially, yes. Especially those patients that are, you know, whatever percentage of those in that 500,000 who didn't have coverage mm-hmm. and who've had this sort of what, what economists would call a pent-up demand. You know, hey, my knee has hurt for years. But I suddenly have an insurance card because yep. I suddenly qualify for Medicaid. Well, now I want to see the orthopod tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there could be some some definite hiccups in the in the system and some challenges of meeting the demand. Is there anything providers need to do to be ready or prepared for that? Yeah, I think what they need to do is they need to first of all look at you know what Medicaid does for their within their group. You know, um, how many patients do they see? Do they have a backlog of patients? Um, a lot of these patients will be or could be new patients, which that's a different appointment slot than a return patient. It chews up more time, et cetera. So they should think about all that other stuff. They should also think about, and, I, you know, I hate to sort of always drive things to, you know, what it means financially, but physician groups are in a very difficult financial position right mm-hmm. now. Um, they should think about what happens that these patients who maybe uh, previously had insurance um, and now qualify for Medicaid, so they don't pay for they, don't, they drop the insurance they used to pay for, right. and they pick up Medicaid. You know, you're going to see that patient, the same patient, but you're going to get paid a lot less mm-hmm. than what you used to get paid, and that could have can have a uh, an impact on the on the physician's financials. I'm staying with Medicaid, but a slightly different topic. Uh, I w- want to talk about the the tailored plans, and these are for uh, those special needs patients. That the, mm-hmm. it's a very narrow network, but the effective date of the uh, the plans and and getting some of these patients the the tailored Medicaid plans has been getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Last time it was pushed back to October 1, and now uh, the NCDHHS has come out and said it's pushed back indefinitely. I, I wrote last Friday that, one, they're concerned, they publicly said that they're concerned about the state budget, and that, that makes sense, but also I wrote that they probably didn't build the network that they want to build for it. 
are we seeing anything else for these reasons for delaying the tailored plans? Well, I think the biggest reason is the the, the network piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to me, and somebody who's you know been in healthcare for thirty six years, it's not surprising. Um, the tailored plans were a very well meant, well meaning um, approach, and I'm, I'm not I'm not challenging what they were trying to do. They were trying to say, look, there's this population of people that have significant special needs, um, and are also going to have needs on the on the physical health side. Boy, but these physical health companies, these managed Medicaid companies, they're good at providing the physical health pain claims. What they're really not good at is caring for all of the other special needs that these people have. Um, mm. So why don't we take plans that are really good at caring for these the special needs that they have and get them to also provide the physical health, pay claims, have doctor networks, et cetera, which again, sounds like, wow, isn't it wonderful for those people? And if you could do it, it would be. The problem is it's significantly underestimated the challenges of building a, the capability of paying their physical health claims and needs. Um, that was normal. So these companies that have really no experience in contracting with a primary care physician or paying a claim for a surgery, they said, well, why don't you just go ahead and do that? Well, that's easier said than done. Right. It'd be a little bit like somebody saying to me, hey, Ron, you know, uh, we need more airline pilots. Why don't you just go ahead and learn how to fly a 727? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you don't do that overnight. No. Okay. Um, and so I think it just underestimated that. In addition, they did a really lousy job of explaining what a tailored plan is to those physical health providers who would get these approaches, say, hey, sign a contract for this Medicaid tailored plan. And they go, I don't know what that is. I don't need another one of those. So I I think it's the network. I think it's what they're trying to do, you know, fit this square peg into a round hole, so to speak. And I'm not sure they're ever going to be able to get it off the Mm -hmm. ground because of that. Um, To me, and I know that nobody's asking my advice to this, but (laughs) what would have been, I think, more intelligent is either if you want these tailored plans to manage this population, have them subcontract with one of the physical health plans sure. to use their network and their claims payment systems, you know, or or sort of marry the two together and say, okay, if you're going to be a, a Blue Cross managed Medicaid plan, you know, you've got to partner with one of these tailored, one of these, you know, plans that deal with these other special needs and, and you know, build a product together, the two of mm-hmm. you for this tailored plan stuff. But, you know, again, nobody asked my opinion on this. Is Are there any states that have managed to get this right, or is North Carolina kind of trying a, a novel approach to this? I don't know of any states who have done this specific thing or tried to get it right or have gotten it right. I think this is a fairly novel approach. I think I know of some other states who are sort of looking at it, but I don't know of it. And there may be out there. I'm just not aware of anybody that's actually sure. done it. All right. Well, we'll have links to uh, these these stories in the show notes at flatlining.net. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.
We're going to switch gears a little bit now, staying with North Carolina and actually staying with, if, if I recall correctly, one of North Carolina's largest managed Medicaid providers, although that's not mm-hmm. quite what we're talking about. And that, But it's Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina. Of course, they're the biggest in many states. Uh, but they have recently, uh, well, I, I should back up a little bit. The state legislature recently, uh, and, and it was signed by the governor, uh, agreed to allow Blue Cross to act more like a for-profit insurance company. And Blue Cross Blue Shield has said that this is going to allow them to compete better uh, against the Uniteds and the Aetnas of the world. Um, at one analysis I read also pointed out that Blue Cross may be scrambling because they lost the state health plan, although that's still pending litigation. It, ultimately, what does this mean, Ron, for uh, for Blue Cross Blue Shield to act like a for-profit insurance company? What what can we see different from them going forward? Well, I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, you know, the whether you're a nonprofit or for-profit doesn't necessarily indicate whether you're going to be a good actor or a bad actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can, I can find examples of both types of organizations who are who fall in both camps, good actors and bad actors, okay? Now, I will say that there are some, I have some greater concerns about when people act more like a for-profit, especially in healthcare, and that's not just the insurance side. I have concerns about the, you know, the provider side as well. Um, but it doesn't suddenly make something evil because they're for-profit, just like being non-profit doesn't suddenly make you angelic and good right what it's likely to mean and this is one of those interesting things where both sides point to the other one and says he has an unfair advantage for decades the Edna Cygnus Uniteds of the world have pointed at the nonprofit Blue Cross plans and say they have an unfair advantage they don't have to pay taxes okay mm-hmm. and the nonprofit Blue Cross plans have pointed over the fence and said they have an unfair advantage they can do things we can't do because of our nonprofit status and we're supposed to act a certain way mm-hmm um, back to the question, what's it like to look like? Well, we really don't know until they do it, but there are concerns that this will free them up to do some of the things that make us nervous when a United does it. It will free them up to do some things like United's done, like owning physicians, mm-hmm. owning ambulatory surgery centers, being a sort of a for-profit investor in those ventures. Um, we now see, uh, you know, Aetna, selling to a pharmacy chain, to CVS. Yep. What's that going to do? Um, and it just raises the the concern that people have, and it's a valid concern to say, well, it's one thing when, I'll pick a company, when Apple acts like a for-profit company, and sometimes, and most times, that's actually good because the way they make more profit is to build a better product. Right. Okay, we like that. It's a different thing when an insurance company acts like for-profit because Many times, what's in the best interest of being profitable is not in the best interest of the patients who need their insurance. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, are they going to do things that will be more in the line of profit motivation? Things like, well, like the example of the rumor what United might be doing, which may be a wonderful thing from a profit perspective, but bad to the healthcare delivery system. And so that's the big concern. We don't know exactly how they're going to act. We're just really concerned because they could do some things that wouldn't be um, the kind of things we've seen from a nonprofit Blue Cross plan historically. Right. Now, let's t- I'll tie it in with another North Carolina story, and you brought it up with the possibility that they may own physician groups or ambulatory surgery centers. As we've talked about previously, certificate of need change is coming to North Carolina in the next few years. 
Do right. you expect that in the rural counties where they don't have to have a CON to start an ambulatory surgery center that you'll start seeing Blue Cross start, starting ASCs or imaging centers? Well, I mean, it, 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 we have that concern right now, let's say, for United. Sure. Um, who, who could, you know, as soon as the CON laws go away, could start building, C, building um, ambulatory surgery centers or imaging centers, et cetera. And the concern isn't that more surgery centers or more imaging centers is necessarily bad. The concern is what if the insurance company owner of the surgery center says to a community group, hey, you either use our surgery center or you're out of our network. Mm-hmm. And what if that surgery center isn't as good? Yeah. Or what if that insurance company, when caring for self-funded employers who the money's coming to their pocket, gives their surgery center a more lucrative deal than the other surgery center across town? where that money then flows back into the insurance company's pocket through a different route. Um, what if, and, and so there's all these sort of what ifs that when you start to control the, you know, the patient because of their insurance coverage, you can force behaviors um, that the patient would otherwise do. Um, so those are start to become very concerning. That's one thing when it's a United Healthcare doing it as big as they are. What happens if a Blue Cross Blue Shield does it, which in most areas is significantly bigger than United? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody might be able to push back on a United and say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't think it's good a care or I don't, it's not, um, you know, advantageous for my, for my patient. It's a whole different thing to push back on Blue Cross, which mm-hmm. is your largest commercial carrier. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of we're going to have to wait and see. The problem is, you know, it's sort of like the, the matrix, you know, once you pick the, the red or the blue pill and you take it, it's too late if right. you decided you made a, you know, you made a mistake. Yep. And, and especially in a place like North Carolina, where I'm, I'm aware that at least last year, the Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina's Medicare Advantage plans were some of the, the, the most profitable plans in the country right. um, in, in terms of revenue. So we've we've talked about what this might do for for patients, um, you know, whether or not they might get better or worse care, whether or not certain, you know, if they're going to start acting more in a profit interest as opposed to a a patient centered interest, which should be the idea of a nonprofit company. What does it mean for competing providers, Uh, especially in in, we'll start within the bigger areas like Raleigh, Charlotte, but then what about some of the smaller, more rural counties as well? Well, in general. Um, I don't think any of this should be viewed as being very provider-friendly or, or good for providers. Um, that's just the nature of the, the push-pull, you know, between payer and provider. There's almost nothing that is um, universally good for both. Um, it's a little bit of a push on one part of the balloon, the other part of the balloon goes up. So the more um, ability, the more leverage, the more options that carriers get, that's usually good for carriers and it's usually bad for providers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reason why if you look at the average income of physicians over decades um, and compare it to inflation, they, they're not doing very well. Um, you know, they're, they're not doing um, beating inflation every year. As a matter of fact, they're, they're losing to inflation. Well, that's because they generally are sort of a, uh, on average don't have the kind of leverage and options that payers have. So anything that gives the payers more gives me a whole lot of concern, especially with the current and only getting worse 
physician shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where does all this break? Um, so, you know, this is not being viewed as a positive thing for providers, and I, I wouldn't expect them to, you know, to think that it's going to be. Now, uh, Blue Cross North Carolina is not the only one uh, doing this right now. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Jersey just uh, had two lawsuits ruled in their favor, uh, or rather two cases dismissed in in their favor that were brought by a nurses union and another uh, nonprofit insurance company in that state, uh, allowing them to do similar steps to what they're doing in North Carolina to act more like a for-profit company. Now, I can think of the only one I can think of right now, Ron, is here in Michigan. There's a weird one where the Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO plans are nonprofit, but then they also have the Blue Care Network, which is a for profit HMO. How does that differ from what North Carolina's Blue Cross North Carolina is getting ready to do? So, there are a number of Blue Cross plans who operate small for profit HMOs. Um, and, and the Blue Cross Association allows that as long as you don't use the Blue Cross Blue Shield name and moniker. Okay. You know, one of my previous employers, um, Capital Blue Cross, um, had a, a for-profit HMO. We had to call it something different. Um, and, and anybody can do that. Now, that's a small part of their business, so it really doesn't impact a lot of what they can do. Even the you know the other the Michigan plan who has their their HMO is a yep. really small part. So it's like having a you know, a side gig, if you will. That's very different than what's happening here because what's happening in North Carolina and, and with Horizon basically allows them to take a f- fairly large sum of money and put it into a structure that allows them to act a lot more mm-hmm. like a for-profit entity. That's going to be a bigger change than if Blue Cross in North Carolina did a for-profit small HMO. Do you think that this is the beginning of the dominoes falling? Are we going to see more state Blue Cross plans switch to a for-profit business model? Yeah, I think so. I mean, years and years ago, we thought that that they were all going to be switched from being nonprofit to for profit. And Blue Cross of North Carolina tried. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to switch their status from nonprofit to for profit, and there was generally thought that they were then going to sell to the you know the Anthem WellPoint merged company. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the state blocked it because the state can block it, and they said you can't do that. So this is their next attempt. Well, if we've got to stay nonprofit, can we do some of it nonprofit and make the other sort of act like for profit? So, um, yes, I think that there's going to be more and more states try this. Some states are going to allow it. Some are are going to block it. North Carolina, the legislature allowed it um, because it does have to be approved at state level. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we will let you know if any of that uh, happens uh, that we talked about here on the Flatlining Podcast and, of course, in our weekly e-newsletter, which you can sign up for at flatlining.net. Ron, we are just about out of time. Thanks for uh, sitting down with me today and talking about North Carolina. No problem. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.